There is an exuberantly joyful spirit in this man. When our sons, we called, looking out the window, very young at that time, looked out the window and he saw his father dressed in a suit and a tie, bouncing across the yard in one of those hippity hop balls. And he often brings that up with one of his fond memories about how it was, you know, to be a kid with, with um, Craig as his dad. Um, one of my uh, earliest recollections of Craig uh, was from our first date, and he's taking me fishing of all things, and he is, he is spread eagled across the hood of this old wreck of a farm car to hold the hood down, and he's grinning in the in the wheel windshield at me while I'm trying to drive this car to the fishing pond. Yeah, that was, <laughs> uh, yeah that's, that's one of my memories of my earliest short collection. So, and there were many non-traditional dates to follow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was fun, and it was slightly off-center, and we had a really good time together. Uh, and that's what I thought I was signing up for uh, when I uh, would check our wedding bill. Um, Years passed, and uh, we had six children, and Craig plummeted into a very deep, dark depression and anger. Yeah, a very frightening uh, experience for Craig and for, for me. Um, in the past 14 years, I have watched uh, Craig's life change dramatically. And that has a lot to do with his spiritual path. Um, today, the, uh, that exuberant man that I married has returned. And uh, I'm looking forward to what he has to say about his personal journey from despair into an open heart. Well, that concludes my talk. Are there any questions? <laughs> well, this is the first time I heard what she had to say, so I was quite surprised. <laughs> but I was going to be surprised no matter what. Good evening, and thank you for coming. Uh, Shohaku Akamura, who was the head teacher at the Zen Center um, about 10 years ago, always began his talks by saying, thank you for coming. And I don't know how that sounded to your ears just now when I said that, but I found it kind of annoying. And um, I don't know if any of you found that annoying. Um, I'm hoping so. I'm hoping I'm not the only one on this. Uh, so to test that out, rather than the show of hands, I'd like all who care to join me in saying thank you for coming. And I'll say, ready, everybody. And then if you want to, you can say thank you for coming. OK. Ready, everybody. 
Thank you for coming. Wow, that's really good. <laughs> you guys don't have the hang-ups I do. Huh? Oh, I found it kind of, uh, I don't know, off-putting, you know. Hey, don't thank me, buddy. You know, was how I felt. You know, I didn't come here to please you. And then I always, I always had good reasons to be annoyed, and I was annoyed a lot. And another reason was, you know, after you hear it three or four times, it sounds so insincere, you know. And uh, you know, he doesn't really mean that. And and I've come to learn. Yeah, I think he really did mean that, and I really mean that. I just. Um, was at a Common Ground had a three-day retreat a couple of weeks ago, and there were 34 or five of us there. And there was a person sitting beside me on either side and in front of me. And when you're sitting for long periods of time, I've sat alone. I practiced alone for a couple of years, and that didn't go very good. And I'm just always, you know, I can be out there and I can thank everybody for coming, you know. I'm just glad to have people. And so thank you for coming. Uh, the talk, uh, I did scribble down some ideas when they asked me to put down what I was going to talk about. But I'm not a very good writer. I'm more of a numbers guy. And uh, my wife is a writer. So she wrote actually took my ideas and wrote this, and this is a lot better than what I had to say. But it, 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 it says, um, I think this was my sentence, as he recalls, Craig had his first fist fight in kindergarten. As he mentioned something about anger. Um, that's basically true. I don't know if you'd call it a fist fight or a wrestling match, but I grew up in this... Uh, small farm town in northwestern Iowa. It was settled by German immigrants, you know, two, two generations before me. And I grew up in the time just America was just in, in kindergarten. They, they had just gotten into World War II. And, and we didn't have buses to bus the, the farm kids into school. So it was just us town kids in there. And, I think there was about 15 or so in my class. And I must have behaved pretty good because this fight occurred, as I remember, in the wintertime because we were rolling around in the snow and grappling. And the only other thing I remember about that was all the boys were around us, you know, and they were really encouraging us on. And, um, and I don't remember how it ended. I suppose the bell rang. And I, I walked into the school building. My kindergarten teacher was just a lovely woman. I really liked her. She was cheerful and upbeat. And I, I walked by to go into the room, and she stopped me, and she says, Craig, what have you been doing? Well, you know, I hadn't been doing anything. You know, I was just fighting. And I said, well, I hadn't been doing anything. And she said, well, your face is all dirty. Oh, I says, me and Van have been fighting. And, you know, I, it, it was a pretty normal thing. And, boy, oh, boy, she... Uh, she let me know that wasn't the right thing to do. And it was very confusing because there was uh, a lot of fighting in my home. And and, uh, and my parents fought a lot with each other, not physically. But uh, my dad was a kind of a big German guy. And my mom was a little Irish woman. She whipped him every time. <laughs> she was red hair and blue eyes. She was tough. Uh, but... Um, 
anyway, that was how I lived my life, to, to fight. That's what I thought I was supposed to do, not, not physically, but to get what I wanted. I was supposed to have what I wanted, and I was supposed to get it, and, and that's, what I, that's what life was about. And, and if I had to outsmart people, I could outsmart people, whatever, whatever I had to do. Can you hear me back there? Okay. Whatever I had to do, you know, I, that's what I was driven, that I thought I was supposed to do. And um, I had to be somebody, somebody important. You know, my mom always wanted me to be, get the best grades and everything. I had, I had one brother. And uh, we, we had an older sister, but she died before either one of us was born. She died when she was only a month old. And my brother was seven years older than me, and Bob, and he's still seven years older than me. <laughs> and, and, and we weren't playmates because of the age difference, you know. And sometimes, maybe twice, I got to tag along with him and his friends, but most of the time I didn't. And... Um, and I was about that same age, five or six, and at the, he used to tease me a lot. And there wasn't a heck of a lot I could do about it, but I'd get mad at him, and he'd tease me. And this one night, there was a wooden mallet there, and it was just about the right size. And I swung it as hard as I could, and I hit him in the knee. And I remember seeing him falling and crying and holding his knee. And uh, I didn't feel bad about that, you know. I just, you know, he was teasing me, and... My God, he deserved it. And years later, at the time of the Korean War, he uh, he joined, signed up to be a, a, a jet. He wanted to learn to be a jet pilot, fighter pilot. And he he's really good uh, physical shape. And he passed his physical, and he told me. Uh, Everything was perfect, and the doctor had him do a knee bend, and his knee cracked real loud. And the doctor said, what's that? And he said, oh, my little brother broke my kneecap. <laughs> and so I, I guess I probably need to call him up uh, tonight or something and apologize about that. I, I loved arithmetic and mathematics and science in school, and, you know, the arts and crafts, and the girls could make it all so neat. Mine were all these big globs and messes. And so I wanted to be an engineer. And because of that, I really did love mathematics. And my dad had, had become successful at that time. And he told me, no, 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 I couldn't be an engineer. I had to be a lawyer, because he never got to go to college. And I think he always wanted to be a lawyer. My br older brother, he couldn't stand the craziness of our house, and he was a rebel, and he was really a rebel. And so when I come along, that job was taken, and so <laughs> I was a good boy. And, you know, I don't know which one has the worst burdens, the good boy or the rebel, but I think we both have our own. And so I was always, so when my dad said I had to go to law school, well, I had to go to law school. Um, and I had some gifts, and I had early successes, and eventually my ego did me in. It was just always having to succeed no matter what I had to do to the people I worked with.
Uh, there's a poem that kind of sums up this attitude. It was supposedly the favorite poem of the president when I was a little boy. And it's called Invictus. And it's an older poem, but I think it kind of catches the culture that I was in and how I saw things. And he says, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul, Uh, yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. I am the master of my life. I am the captain of my soul. And, you know, if, if you buy into that, you're going to have some problems. And, and, and I bought into that. That was really the way it was supposed to be. And um, what happened was in my 50s, a time when a lot of people can start to relax and reflect on the good things in their life. I was all washed up in my free time on weekends. I'd lie on the sofa and watch TV, and I didn't care what was on. I had a lovely wife. I had six lovely children. I didn't give any care about them. I was just killing time. I had no interest. I, I was really as good as dead. And I would go through the motions at work, and I wasn't good at my work. And it was awful. And I didn't know it. My wife was fixing to divorce me. I knew my children really didn't want to have anything to do with me. And um, I couldn't really understand why everybody was picking on me. But for a while, I, I tried to fight against that. Uh, but it was me. It was up to me to do it. You know, I had to be resourceful. I, I had to do it. I had to pull myself up by my bootstraps, you know. I was the master of my fate. And I'd read self-help books, and I'd get good ideas, and I'd write them down in notebooks, and I'd institute a new regime, and this was going to straighten me up, and I was going to gain all the glory that I had once had had. And within a few, and, and, and I would institute things where I'd change my routine, and I'd do this, and I'd do that. And in a few weeks, that was all gone, you know. And I was right back where I was, watching whatever was on TV. And then in a while, I'd get a hold of another book. And by golly, this time, I think I got it, you know. And each time, the, the fight was less. And, and, and it seemed like I was further down. What kind of a guy was I? Um, in, in his book, uh, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, uh, Bill Wilson has a passage. I think he's talking about himself and other people that he worked with, but it sure fits me. And I'd like to just quote that. It's, but it's from our twisted relations with family, friends, and society at large that many of us have suffered the most.
We've been especially stupid and stubborn about them. The primary fact that we fail to recognize is our total inability to form a true partnership with another human being. Our egomania digs two disastrous pitfalls. Either we insist upon dominating the people we know, or we depend upon them far too much. And I can tell you, one man can do both of those things. As we redouble our efforts at control and continue to fail, our suffering becomes more acute and constant. We have not once sought to be one in a family, to be a friend among friends, to be a worker among workers, to be a useful member of society. Always we tried to struggle to the top of the heap or to hide underneath it. This self-centered behavior blocked a partnership relation with any one of those about us. That's how it was for me. And he wrote that, you know, 30 years before it was happening to me. My wife got me to marriage counseling. I was somewhat reluctant, couldn't figure out why we needed counseling. And that led me to being treated for depression. And the psychologist that treated me was very kind, a man I have a high regard for. And to help me accept, not deny, that I had depression, what worked, I remember he says, well, Craig, he says, you're like an automobile with a V8 engine, and you're trying to run on four cylinders. Oh, okay. I know what that means. Yeah, that would be really tough. And um, so, anyway, that's what it was like. And then a, a change started happening. My loving wife, even though she was preparing to divorce me, she cared about me. And she invited me to go with her to hear this guy talk. His name was Ernie Larson. And I heard him talk at our junior high. Uh, he talked about drugs and kids in junior high. And so I said, okay, I would go. Okay, I will go if you really want me to. It's kind of how I said it. And we drove up there. as a big church, and there must have been a couple hundred people there. And I sat there like this. I defy you to help me, to Ernie Larson, you know, to whoever it was. That's kind of my attitude toward life. And he talked. And in the middle of his talk, I nudged my wife and said, you got a pencil and paper I could borrow? And she dug in her purse, and, and eventually she came up with an envelope and a pen, and she gave it to me, and I started making notes on that envelope. I'm surprised here. I'm having a little reaction to this. Uh, we, we got home that night. It was a beautiful fall night. And I pulled down the garage door, and the moon was full in the fall, you know. And something that he had said connected with me, and I felt hope. 
And I never really had that from these self-help books. And I felt really good, and I thought, this life can be meaningful. And, and I was pretty excited. And I went in the house, and I wanted to transcribe the stuff off the back of the envelope into a notebook where I kept these notebooks and stuff because I, I, I guess I thought my salvation was in these words. And, and, and so I wanted to get that down while it was fresh in my mind. And I, and I found a note. And I didn't have any clean notebooks. They all had something in them. And so I found one that didn't have very much. And I turned to the first bank page, and I started writing these notes down. And I got them all written down. And then I looked what I had written before. And this scared the bejesus out of me, what I saw. Because what I had done is I had written out of a self-help book sentences. They were so important to me that I copied them down. This was before computers, you know. I, copied, I wrote down the sentences in longhand. And I read them, and they were the same thing that I had heard this guy say that night. Only they were a little more complete because I wasn't going by memory. They were complete plugs. And they said it better than what I had written down. And I would have sworn it was all new to me that night. And I, I was a little paranoid. I thought, somebody's playing a trick on me. But it was my handwriting. You know, there, there, there's no, well, I, re, I really was. And, and, and I, my habit was to date entries like that. And it was nine months before. So I was scared. I was really scared. Here I had this hope. And here I had evidence that I must have had that same hope before. And I completely blanked it out. And was this going to happen again? And I couldn't stand it. I don't think I had another, <coughs> another chance. And I drew a different conclusion. And the conclusion I drew was, I need help. And that opened the door just a bit, because I didn't know where I was going to find help. <laughs> I had no idea where I'd find help. And I called the psychologist and told him I needed help. I says, what about Al-Anon? And he says, oh, no, Craig, you don't want to go to that. That's just a bunch of wives bitching about their husbands. That's what he said. And I said, no, I don't need to go to that. I get all that at home that I need. And so, um, so I asked him for some ideas. And there was a, he suggested a couple things. And Ernie Larson had a group. And I tried these different things for a couple of months because I wasn't, I wasn't going to let go of this. And but it didn't work. It didn't feel right. I don't know. And, and about two months later, I was still trying. And there was on a buffet in our house, there was an Al-Anon directory. And I just picked it up. You know, didn't have anything better to do. And I looked through the directory. And there was a group that met near our house. And it was called Men's Al-Anon. And so I read it. It said, Men Only. I told you I was pretty smart, right? In uh, no time at all, almost no time at all, I figured 
There wouldn't be any wives bitching about husbands there, so I went. <laughs> I didn't like it. You know, I went in there. I didn't know anything about 12 steps or any of that stuff. It's the first time I'd ever been to one of those things. I didn't like the looks of the guys. They didn't know how to run a meeting right. You know, it just wasn't any good at all. You know, I mean, that guy's kind of lounging around, and, oh, maybe we ought to do this, you know, and, by God, if you're going to do something, you know. And, and, and so uh, I, I didn't want to go anymore. And, and they told me at the end, they, they told me, actually, they said every week I found out, if, if you're new, Come back six times before you decide uh, whether or not to quit. Well, I thought I could do that. And something kind of miraculous happened in between, between me and my brother, between that first meeting. And I don't have time to go into that. But uh, I started coming back. And by the time those six weeks were up, I knew I belonged. I found a home. It wasn't the steps. It wasn't the literature. It wasn't listening to People give talks. They give a you know, somebody gives a talk each week. It was a fellowship. It was guys who were sitting around and they would talk about things that I kept secret. You know, about things that they did that they should have been ashamed of, and and then sometimes they'd laugh about it. You know, and after a while. I just kept coming back. That that felt pretty good. And and I made some friends there. And uh, and I started going to a second group that had women. And you know what? They didn't bitch about their husbands. They do the same things men do. They were each person's kind of working on themselves, you know. And um, so there was a guy in my men's group, that Thursday night group who I really had a lot of admiration for. There was a certain quality about him, peace and calm. And I said, how do you get that? I'd like to, I'd like to have that. You know, you got a book or something you can tell me. And he says, Craig, why don't you go to the Zen Center? And sure, that's a good idea. Right? You know, <laughs> I'd had it with religions. I'd had it with God. You know, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't going to do that. But I'm still curious. In the, my Tuesday night meeting, there was a woman who had these same qualities about her, and I asked her the same questions. You know, what do you read? What do you do? And she says, Craig, why don't you go to the Zen Center? You know. <laughs> now, a normal person would have said, Hallelujah! I found the answer. I said, Damn. You know, I gotta do that. I didn't want to do it. I had to look up the address in the book. I drove over there one nice morning, and the, and I uh, and they said, "Signs said you gotta go around the back door." I didn't like that. You, you gotta you gotta put your shoes and coats in the basement. And why would I want to do that? I I walked in the door, and there it was about 8:30 in the morning. There was a woman standing in the kitchen there in a black robe, had all her hair cut off. And she bent down when I came in, and I swear she said, my name is Tofu. How can I help you? Right? 
I didn't say what I was thinking to her, but what I did say was, uh, I said, well, I don't know. I said, some friends of mine told me I should check this place out. And she says, I was very lucky that you came today. This week we're um, starting an introductory class. And and she started saying, Mark says, where's the sign-up list? I said, I'll go. You know, I, I knew that. You know, it was out of my hands at that point. And it was Judith Regeer, uh, who I'm sure some of you know, led this. It was five weeks, and she just taught us how to set, and it was just wonderful. And she did things different than I'd ever seen done before, and I really liked it. And so then I started going to the regular things there at the Zen Center, and it was after Category had died. I, I never went there when Category was alive. I've only heard stories about him. And they were kind of, they weren't, uh, they were in the transition, you know, and they were a little bit up in the air. So when you went there each week, you know, they're all people that look like me, you know, Europeans. And they're going around and they're saying, you know, all this Chinese stuff, you know, and so, or Japanese stuff, I'm sorry. And so, so I quit going there, you know. It's too Japanesey for me. <laughs> Little did I know what was in store for me. <laughs> so the next thing that happened on my Buddhist path was um, anger. Somebody mentioned anger. And at one of the meetings, a guy I was good friends with after the meeting told me, he says, hey, Craig, you ought to go to our church this weekend. There's a Zen priest going to put a workshop on anger. Boy, that made me mad. Yeah, you know, why don't you mind your own? And so, so anyway, he convinced me I needed to go. So I went to this thing, and and my part was leading it, and there was about 20 of us, you know, and, and we were sitting around in chairs, and Mike explained how the day was going to be, and then he said, okay, to start this thing going, I want you all, each one of you, to think of something, a specific incident where you were really angry, you know, fairly recently, and I don't want you to think about the story. Just just remember the feeling of being angry. And before I got done talking, you know, I'm going to, you know, I got, I got one going, you know. And, and there's like 20 of us in there. And the guy sitting right next to me, after two minutes, raises his hand and says, what do you do if you can't think of any? <laughs> I turned on him and I said, what are you doing here? You know, <laughs> you know, some goody two-shoes pretending that he never gets angry. You know, get out of here. You know, uh, I had a new one, so uh, yeah, I guess I had anger issues. And, and, uh, and I, 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 I stuck with it. Mike was just about ready to get started then, and then Judith joined him. And um, in the second course, there was a book, uh, uh, Jack Cornfield's Path with Heart, and we used it as a study book. And, you know, I was an engineer. I, I didn't get to do a lot of liberal arts classes. And, but there was a line of poetry in that book. And as I remember, it goes, you don't have to be good. You don't have to crawl through the desert a hundred miles or more on your knees. All you have to do is let let and what soft soft 
something animal in you, let the soft animal in you love what it loves. And I read those two lines of poetry, and I looked at the bottom. It said, Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. That weekend, I drove to what was then the Hungry Mind. I asked him where the poetry was. I found Mary Oliver. I found a book that has wild geese in it. And I bet I I don't know how many books of Mary Oliver poems. I don't know. I like poetry. <laughs> Surprise. Um, golly, that helped me. And she helps me. Uh, I was with Mike. And that summer, 11 of us received the precepts, um, lay ordination, um, a ceremony. And we prepared for it and all that. Chukai and Japanese. And it was very nice. And there's there's ten precepts in the way it was given. And it was seventh or eighth, I don't remember the number, was about anger. And the vow was, I will not indulge in anger. You know, and that word indulge helped me so much. It helped me to see it wasn't the anger that was had been tearing me up. It was indulging in it. And, you know, I would get enjoyment out of anger. I'd get something out of it. It was in the indulgement in it, not the anger. Well, um, I begin to heal. And then along comes Shohaku Akamura to be the head teacher at the Zen Center. He's a real Japanese. His family was in Osaka, I think, for 300 years or something like that. And... I fell in love with him. What a guy. You know, first time I heard him speak, I couldn't understand a word at the beginning. And at the end, I understood everything he said. And just one one thing that he taught me that stayed with me. I'd gone down to a retreat at Hokyoji for three days. He wasn't there. Shokan was leading that. Shokan's an American. But he, he just loves these. Japanese ceremony. We do orioki eating there, and orioki is a small bowls, and they sit beside one another, and they're wrapped up a very particular way. And when Shokan was demonstrating that, you know, he's just, he's just bliss. You know, it was like arts and crafts to me. I just hated it, you know. And, and, and all through the whole retreat, I hated it because it took so long and your knees hurt so bad. And, 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 and so went back to Minneapolis, and the next week, Shohaku's lecture, he began, first sentence was, many Westerners don't like orioki eating. <laughs> Second sentence, many Japanese don't like orioki eating. Oh, that's surprising me. Third sentence was, I don't like orioki eating. <laughs> and before I could jump off and hug him, he finished the sentence. And the finish of the sentence was, but I do it because it's good for me. What a novel idea. <laughs> Doing something because it's good for you, even if you don't like it. That has stayed with me ever since as a way of life.
It was at that point I came face to face with my stubbornness, my defiance, my rebelliousness. I'll only do it if it makes sense to me. I'll only do it if I can control it. I'll only do it if I can know what the outcome's going to be. No thanks, I'll figure this out myself. I don't have to do what you tell me. You say I have to sit up. Huh, I can slump. Oh, just, you know, I was all over the place. Arrogance, you know. I don't know what it all is. I do it because it's good for me, has guided me on my path. Shohaku left town. He went out to L.A. first. I sat alone for a couple of years at home, and that doesn't work very good for me. So I wandered over here. I'd been here a few times before, and I listened to Mark. And Mark is the real deal, too. Shohaku is the real deal. Mark's the real deal, in my book. And the real deal is a guy, he, he walks the walk, you know. Uh, it's not just words with him, I think. Well, what have I learned? I got a. Oh, how long am I supposed to? Am I supposed to stop soon? Fifteen minutes. Oh, I think I go to eight forty-five. Eight thirty. Okay. Let's see. I lost my page again. Oh, we go to 8.30? Oh, so I quit then. Oh, okay, I thought it was till 9. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, i got to wind this up. Okay, I want to tell you some quotes that helped me. One is, is from the 12-step program, I think, although they generally steal something from, from somewhere. The quote is, life is not a theory. It must be lived. Kierkegaard says something very similar to that. He says, life has to be lived forward. It can be understood only backward. And the third quote in this vein I really like, I heard, it was just before the fall of the uh, Soviet Empire. It was a Ukrainian coal miner. And he says, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. <laughs> They're all kind of the same thing. Another quote in the 12-step program is, suit up, show up, try to do the next right thing. It's the same thing. See, the, the trouble with life is not a theory, it must be lived, and the trouble with Life must be lived forward. It can be understood only backwards. It's because I want to control it. I want to understand it before I do it. You know, I want to know it's going to work out the way I want. And the reason that way didn't work for me, I think, is in the doing it first without knowing. You have to have some faith to do it. Then you can get a real understanding not a theoretical understanding. Okay. 
another quote. This one my wife gave me. Somebody had given it to her. And it's really a good one for Buddhist practice or life. We never say no to service opportunities. We never say no to service opportunities. I've been coming here a few months and long enough to feel a little bit guilty about not doing anything. And I knew they were going to mail out the newsletter. Uh, so I called Mark to volunteer. I figured he'd ask me to help fold the newsletters, which was about what I was willing to do. So I called him and told him, I'd like to help out a little bit with something there. Uh, could I be of help? And he's, his next sentence to me was, you're an attorney, aren't you, Craig? Oh, no. I know what's coming. I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, they were going to do some changes there, and they could use the help of an attorney. And I said, I'd be glad to. And that led me to such wonderful relationships with people, some of them here in this room, some not, working relationships over a period of years that I treasure deeply. I learned so much from them. Um, Mark asked me if I thought I could lead a group for 12-step recovery and mindfulness meditation. I said, I want to think that one over. And it was about two days. All of a sudden, out of the blue, it came to me. I would like to do that. So it started uh, about a year and a half ago. I worked really hard at it, and a lot of people came, and it didn't work very well. And after three months, I was, I didn't know what was wrong, and I called Mark and asked him if I could come and talk to him. And so we talked, and I told him about how bad I felt about it. And he made a few suggestions, and maybe do something about format, do this, do that. But then he said at the end, he says, Craig, he says, as you prepare each week, and as you lead that meeting, ask yourself one question. What's this all about? He said, don't try to find an answer. Just keep asking the question. What good advice that is. You know, that's really guided me. What's this all about? And out of that, I started to relax. I started to enjoy the meeting, <laughs> whether other people did or not. You know, I can't help that. And, uh, you know, what's it all about is a, is a good question to ask yourself. And Mark gave me that. I, I've just got a couple more minutes then. Uh, what's life like now? A few years ago, I have two sons and four daughters. For a birthday present, my two sons gave me a three-ring binder. And it was jammed full of papers, and I read through them. And there were write-ups for travel adventure trips, you know, several pages on biking through the mountains in Vermont, staying each night at a different B&B, uh, whitewater rafting in Idaho, fishing up in Vancouver. You know, they're all just sorts of really wonderful adventure things. And the deal was I was to pick one, and the three of us were going to do it. And uh, anyway, the three of us spent six days backpacking in the Ansel Adams Wilderness Area in the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And, you know, something 
Oh, it's very nice. In the mornings, each morning, my wife and I read to each other our meditation books, just a daily little meditation. And then each of us talk about ourselves. I talk about myself, some of my shortcomings, you know, and she does the same. And we're open, and it's very healing, and it's very intimate. You know, I could have never imagined that happening. Um, I sponsor a half a dozen men. You know, I'm supposed to be teaching them stuff, but they're really teaching me stuff. My brother is still seven years older. He lives out in California. We call each other about three times a week. When I came back from that retreat at Holy Spirit two weeks ago, I had a question just burning me from as a result of the retreat. And I called him. I said, Bob, do you remember, how did you learn to ride a bicycle? Because I couldn't remember. My, my dad was off then making his fortune. And he said, sure, I remember, Craig. He says, Dad had bought me a bicycle. And he took me out, and he held the bicycle, and I climbed on. And then he started pushing me, and I was pedaling. And then I started going faster, and he was running. And I was pedaling, pedaling, and I turned around, and he was way back there. I said, oh, I'm so glad. You know, it was the answer I wanted to hear. Dad is really a good guy. <laughs> um, so all I can say is old age is not so bad. Fifteen years ago, if you would have given me a genie and said I could have all the wishes I wanted come true, I should just write them down. Had I done that, I would have sold myself short. That's my talk, other than if anybody would care to join me. Ready? Everybody, thank you for coming. <laughs> Now, discussion, is that right? Comments or questions? Uh, or arguments? No. <laughs> or meditation? Yes, please. What do you think was the biggest contribution to you finding the inner peace that you found? It sounds to me like you had a, a lot of turmoil going on inside you. The biggest factor to cause inner peace. Good friends and good teachers. And a willingness to do what they told me to do. I feel very lucky. I, I don't know, really. I just don't know. You know, it's those two people back to back telling me to go to the damn Zen Center and I didn't want to go and going anyway, you know. And the woman there saying, gee, you're lucky you're here. Uh, I'll sign up, you know. It's some part of, that's part of it. It's just, when I began, 
I could not say the word faith. You know, I had been religious, I studied a lot, and, but I'm so turned off by that. And over time, I gained confidence. Confidence in this spiritual path. You know, I wouldn't have called it that at the time, but I, but I had a certain confidence. And that grew into trust. And now I can say the word faith without even blinking, you know. I have faith in this path. Mark, Mark mentioned this, you know, sometimes we're confused. He mentioned this at the retreat. Sometimes we're confused and we waver and we don't know what to do. And he says, and sometimes we want to get, you know, we want to get the goodies right away. And it seems so long. And he says, he's just glad to know that he, Mark, is just glad to know that there is a path. So I think it's, that's probably, maybe that's it. Having some trust that there is a path. Having a trust that Mark is the kind of guy who you can rely on. I don't know. That's a, maybe somebody else has an answer to that. <laughs> well, I just have a comment as a member of the Friday night Buddhist 12 step program. We do enjoy that medium. It's something we all really do. And as a sponsor, your, your wife, your loving wife, she felt so a loving sponsor. I just am so amazed at the, uh, you know, the path that she's led the person that she's become and I can just see that what the gift of this program has done in your in your life just remarkable and um, it's been just amazing to witness it and to be a part of the same program so thanks for being here <laughs> thanks for what? <laughs> scholar, you know, it's just beyond me, I just, I don't know, 
But uh, but I think I think you describe it the way it felt. Yeah. Yeah. I think you described it the way it felt. There has to become a time of willingness. You know. And and I think that's part of the path. Maybe these things are always available to us. You know, I'm I'm really speculating now. <laughs> and and when you open to them, then it's like they're new. You know, I, I, that's just speculation. Yes. Sounds like um, you kept trying to do everything on your own and figure it all out and read the books, but it wasn't until you said, "I need help," yeah. that you found the connection through others. So. Isn't it true often if you're really in despair or hurt that you just can't heal alone? It's very hard to heal yourself alone. But we always try to because we're so independent as Americans to try to do it ourselves, figure it out. So it seems like even when you were telling your story, that was very emotional when you actually admitted that you need help. Yeah, that was a really a turning point. Maybe that's the best answer to the first question. Could you hear her back there? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. It was because you know, and that's the teachings of Buddha. We're not alone. We're connected. You know, it's it's this false self that keeps us alone. And some people can get there without having to hit bottom. And some people don't. And uh, I fought it as long as I could. And then I was, when I was whipped, that's when I got health. You know, I think you're right. Thank you. It's 8.26, but do we do any announcements or anything? Or? You have some announcements. Were there any last questions or comments? Or? The 12-step um, teaching, yeah. does that mean you have to be an alcoholic? Uh, no. Actually, really strong traditions about anonymity and and that's done for the protection of the organization rather from from the people that belong um, no I'm uh, I tell people when I talk I'm not alcoholic not yet and, <laughs> and, and, um, but it's really the program I'm in it has to do with, and alcoholics have the same problem. I think the alcoholism is just a symptom, but it's kind of from an obsessive way of thinking, a strong self-centeredness, um, self-pity, and all. It's, uh, and and I thought 
and I, I talked to my sponsor and, and to people I trusted before I, I decided it was okay to disclose, to break my anonymity, um, that I belonged to the 12-step group. Um, I think it was, it was okay in this situation, but you should know there's no experts in any 12-step. Uh, it's just everybody's equal, a newcomer, and nobody is a spokesman for the 12 steps. Because if a person says, well, I got it, then you know they don't got it. But, uh, but and and in the early days with Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a program for alcoholics, they had problems with that, that prominent people were so taken with the program that they they would disclose their anonymity and then when they when they got when they lost their when they became drunk again then they were kind of held up to ridicule it brought uh, disrespect to the whole organization so that's why nobody speaks on behalf of it it's a strong tradition and so I'm not speaking on behalf of Elanon or what Elanon's about I'm just telling what helped me and along with Buddhism, you know. <laughs>